This episode is dedicated to Howard Rheingold. Thank you, Howard, for helping me think critically about new information and communication technologies, for being my expert learner, and for being my friend. And just to give a heads up, the guest you're about to hear from and I will be speaking together in Palo Alto in September. You'll hear more about that at the end of the episode. Here we go. During the whole time where I was in the venture world, I sort of watched Google sort of come of age and develop, and I always thought, God, it would have been so cool to work at Google. And there was probably a, a mild obsession here. I became pretty obsessed with sort of finding the next Google and sort of trying to understand what were the characteristics, the generalized characteristics of Google that maybe existed in a new and emerging company at the time. And there were, there were a series of criteria that, that Facebook met um, that, were, that, that had similarities. And they were looking for someone. They were looking for someone to help them figure out the business model. Um, and so that was the job. And so when I, when I graduated from business school, you know, a few weeks later, I showed up at, showed up at Facebook. That's Tim Kendall. He graduated from Stanford Business School. And when he showed up at Facebook, their office was actually across the street from Google's first office on University Avenue in Palo Alto. I'm Stephanie Lepp, and this is Reckonings, an exploration of how we change our hearts and minds. When Tim got to Facebook, he started off by meeting with a bunch of people his boss told him to meet with. And one of the people that I met with, she was a product manager, and she said, you know, you really should get Mark's book and his notebook and make a copy of that and go home and read it. So I went up to Mark's um, executive assistant, Anika, and I said, hey, could, could I get a copy of Mark's notebook? Naomi told me that there's this, there's this notebook. And, um, and she said, yeah, just ask Mark for it. So I went up to Mark and I introduced myself and I said, hey, Naomi told me about this notebook. Could you – do you think I could use it and make a quick copy of it so I can read it? Just sort of to understand what, what's going on in your mind about you know, the company and what's, what you're planning to build and everything. And he said, yeah, sure. And he said, we should also just grab um, – we should just grab lunch and we can kind of talk about that and, and you know, the other stuff you're working on. And so I made a copy of his book which ended up being this – 65-page, handwritten, incredible vision document that really laid out um, what Facebook became over the course of the next five-plus years. The Mark who wrote those 65 handwritten pages was, yes, Mark Zuckerberg. Mark ended up asking to move Tim's desk right next to his so they could talk more often as Tim began the process of building Facebook's business model. We had a couple criteria that we were, we were evaluating. One was just this, the rate at which we could, you know, how, how quickly could you grow a big business from, you know, Model X versus Y versus Z. And advertising, you know, scored very high on that. There was also another criteria which was what sort of margins could you make on, on you know, business X versus Y versus Z? And it turns out that advertising is a very good business uh, because you're sort of selling air, right? 
Um, there's no sort of cost of goods sold in, in advertising. You're not manufacturing anything. I had a real bias towards advertising. The reason that people at the time, the, the skeptics at the company and even outside the company felt like advertising was not going to work at Facebook was that, look, on Google, and the reason Google works so well is that when I go to Google search and I search for digital camera, I get a bunch of organic results, but then I also get ads for Nikon and Sony cameras. And the the reason that works is because people have commercial intent when they go to Google. They have this intention of looking for something commercial. They don't have that, the argument went, uh, on Facebook. On Facebook, you don't have commercial intent. You have really, really high degrees of social intent in the sense that you come there to learn about what your friends and family are up to. And what we figured out was a way to make the ads have more of a social bend to it. We figured out that if Stephanie interacted with, you know, the Nikon camera page on Facebook and decided that she liked it, we could use that piece of data in an advertisement to Stephanie's friends. And then the, the ad that Stephanie's friends would get would be, hey, Nikon makes a great camera, and Stephanie, your friend, likes them too. And that's why it was called a social ad. I had a lot of personal excitement. I mean, I remember, I remember learning years before I went to Facebook about a guy named Soller, who was an early Google employee who's really credited with conceiving of Google AdWords, which is the, it's the business that they built around search. And I remember hearing this guy was like a 20-something guy who came up with the idea, and all of a sudden, a few years later, he was, he was looking after a multi-billion dollar business. And I remember hearing the story about this guy and thinking, God, I would love to figure out a way to... Um, get that kind of trajectory or path at a different company. And I remember pretty regularly thinking, oh, maybe this is, maybe this is like the Solar moment. You know, maybe, maybe what we've all figured out is like kind of what Solar figured out at, at, at Google. And we're going to look back and this is going to be the seminal moment. Like, yep, we figured out the system that he end up ends up yielding this, you know, billions or tens of billions of dollar business. You know, probably four or five months after we launched the product, we were doing billions of dollars in revenue. I think two thousand ten, it did. You know, we did over two billion dollars in revenue. Um, Sheryl Sandberg becomes the becomes the COO, and I remember being in meetings with. David Fisher and Sheryl Sandberg, and they would ask me, well, why is this number this week down a quarter of 1%? And I felt like it was too early to spend my time figuring out answers to that question. It seemed like we should instead be figuring out where we're going to get the next $5 billion in revenue. And it wasn't as exciting as, as those early days when we were 
you know, when I was sitting eight feet away from Mark and talking at night about what, you know, what this could become, it was becoming a real company. It was several thousand people. And that stage just was less, it was just less energizing to me. Um, so I left. Tim left Facebook and went over to Pinterest to help them build their business model. In Pinterest's case, it was a lot more straightforward and easier to think about and build the elegant business model because what people do on Pinterest is very distinct from what they do on Facebook. On Pinterest, they are really looking for things to discover that, and then and then go out and take action on those things. You know, they go on Pinterest to discover recipes and then they go off and cook them. They go on Pinterest to discover. Um, you know, different hobbies, and then they go actualize those in the world. So you can see how it would be easy to just put advertising, you know, in alignment with that organic content, and and it would work well. If you do a search for tree houses because you want to discover different tree houses that you can build for your kids, and we show you a bunch of pins on Pinterest, so pictures of different tree houses configurations and there's an ad for a treehouse, that's kind of as good as advertising can be. So 2017, the business is growing, you know, more than 50% a year. You know, we're on a path to get to a billion, billion dollars in revenue over the next several years. The user base is continuing to grow at a really nice clip. Um, and right around that time, Forbes Forbes magazine put the founders on the cover, you know, I think with their arms crossed and the, and the, you know, in big letters was the title, which was move over Zuck. It was a sensational headline. We were nowhere close to getting Zuck to move over, but, uh, it, it did make me feel like, you know, I had found and helped grow a company that was now being considered, um, you know, in the same solar system as as Facebook and what and what Mark created, and that that felt good. There was like a there was a a uh, yeah, it felt good. When you are a part of something like Facebook and you contribute in in the way that I contributed, and then you leave, you. You don't want to be viewed as a one-trick pony. You don't want to be viewed as the person who got lucky once. Um, Sarah Lacey, who's this great journalist um, in Silicon Valley, wrote this book called Once You're Lucky, Twice You're Good. And I don't know. I think at that moment I felt like, well, maybe it's going to be for me twice you're good. Pinterest's office was in San Francisco, was in Soma area, right by the right by the uh, the ballpark, and we lived down in San Mateo, which is probably a half an hour away. So I'm living in suburbia. I have two kids. I have a two year old and a well, actually one and a half year old, and like a newborn. And I am making a point to get home, 
you know, at a reasonable time so I can see my, my kids. And Pinterest was very intense at the time. And, and I would really make a point to break off and leave and be home. Um, and w- what I started to notice was that I would get home and then I would be on my phone and not with my kids. I would find, I would sort of catch myself in my pantry and I would be in there scrolling through Instagram or looking at videos on YouTube, frivolous videos on YouTube. I wasn't, it was, weren't, weren't like beneficial how-tos. The, the excuse for going there was so easy. It was like, oh, I'm going to grab a, I'm going to grab a snack. But I would go, I would say, oh, I'm going to go grab a snack. And you'd go and I would go into the, the pantry and maybe I would get a snack and I'd eat it. And then I'd stay in the pantry and pull out my phone as I was eating my snack. And then, you know, 30 minutes pass. I do remember my kids doing something for the first time, like outside of the pantry while I was home and missing the moment because I was in the pantry. You know, maybe my kid is saying her first word. Who knows? My wife would say, "Hey, what are you? What are you up to? <laughs> what are you up to?" And there, you, your your snack is taking a long time. Um, and my kids, my my oldest started to call me out. She would say, "Dada, get off your phone." I was behaving in ways that were fundamentally incongruent with my values. Um, but I couldn't resist. I started to research how do you stop using your, like if you have a problem with your phone, what do you do? I started to research this in. You were like in the pantry on your phone researching how to stop using your phone. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, what is, what is wrong with me and how do I stop? Um, and the thing that I came across it was originally designed for dieting. Hmm. And basically what it is, it's a plastic container with um, a top. And the top has like a lock on it and a dial. And you can turn the dial to a certain time. So you can say, so for dieting, you can say, oh, I've got these muffins, but I don't want to eat them. So I'm going to put them in here and set the dial for 24 hours so that I don't eat these things until tomorrow. And I think the folks at Kitchen Safe started to realize that, well, yeah, this works for dieting, but also would work for other things that I want to make a commitment to not use for the next hour or three hours. And so they started simultaneously marketing this as a way to protect yourself from your phone. <laughs> and so I ended up, uh, I ended up ordering one and using it and, and started to get into um, you know, somewhat obsessive habit of putting my phone into this kitchen safe, you know, when I got home and saying, okay, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to open this thing for the next three hours. Um, and it was really effective because this thing, once you, once you turn the dial and press start, you can't get into this thing short of, sort of smashing it with a hammer. I started seeing people at work 
on their phones in meetings. And, and by the way, I also noticed that I was getting on my phone in meetings and not paying attention and missing important information in meetings. Um, or, you know, that, that experience that we have where you're talking to someone, maybe it's not in a meeting, maybe it's in a one-on-one conversation, someone pulls out the phone and just starts looking at it while you're talking to them. These things are making us sick. Tim had become the president of Pinterest, and right around then he was invited to give a keynote at the biggest advertising conference in the world, in the south of France. He decided to talk about his struggle with his phone and how it was getting in the way of being the kind of dad he wanted to be. So he's at the conference, he gets up on stage, it's the opening keynote, and as a technology executive, he tells a room full of other technology executives, including executives from Facebook and Google and other major tech companies, how those very technologies are harming our mental and emotional well-being. What has happened since the introduction of the smartphone and then all these services that sit on top of it that are often used in really unhealthy ways is epidemic increases in self-harm among teenagers, huge increases in suicide rates since 2007 to today. Uh, oh, by the way, if you double-click and look at teenage women, that suicide rate has doubled in that period of time. I, I think as I was wrapping this up, I just felt like, gosh, I'm, I'm talking about something that I really care about. Um, I was so energized by trying to articulate the problem. Um, that was really the first time where I thought, God, I really probably should go work on this. And so he did. Tim left Pinterest to start a company that would tackle technology addiction. He imagined building a piece of software that could show us how much we use our phones and coach us to use them in ways that are more aligned with our values. In my preliminary research, I, you know, I was just doing, I'm sure I was just doing a search in the Apple App Store for phone addiction, and I came across Moment. So I download this app. It asks me uh, how old I am and what my goals were. Um, and then it drops me into the main view, which showed how much time I was spending on my phone. I thought, oh, my God, I spent a lot of time on my phone. Uh, I sort of had this moment of envy, <laughs> frustration, um, excitement. Uh, envy and frustration because moment was what I had imagined building. Um, and it had already been built. And so I started researching the company and it, it was one, one guy, I think he was 26, 27. Um, his name is Kevin Holish. And he had built this app all on his own. Um, he had built this app from scratch and had, and had, um, it had grown to millions of users. I said, hi, Kevin, I love, uh, I, I'm, I'm a user of your app and I love what you're doing. Um, 
I wonder if there are ways that I could be helpful. Um, are you interested in a conversation? And he responded. And um, we, we quickly got to the, to the crux of, of what I was trying to get to, which was, hey, how do we, is there a way we can partner up? I didn't know, by the way, at this point that he lived in, a, in an RV. But I remember thinking when I first did a video conference with him, I just thought, God, the background in, behind that window is gorgeous. Tim ended up acquiring Moment. Kevin became head of product, and Tim became CEO. When I left Pinterest, there was an article about it. And then, you know, like, common on Twitter, lots of people weighed in about the article about my, my leaving. And in the article it said that I was leaving to go start a company that was going to address technology addiction. Um, and there was a tweet that someone sent me. And the, and the tweet was basically, guy who helped create two of the most addictive services out there is now going to help unaddict you. Brilliant. Um... And it, it was a joke, but it was also true. I, th- I, I, I was, I think I read it online in a, in a newspaper. Um, I read about the, question being posed to Mark, do you think your platform had any, do you think Facebook had any role in shifting the outcome of the election? And he, he kind of laughed it off and was pretty, and was dismissive. And I had the same reaction. I, I thought, yeah, that's, that's absurd. That doesn't make any sense. Over time, Right in the in the in the ensuing months, it became very clear that, in fact, the platform had been absolutely utilized to manipulate the election, and Facebook had no idea. At some point, Facebook acknowledged, "Yeah, our platform was manipulated. We might have we might have tipped the election." And we screwed up. I think one of the things that I leaned on very heavily for why advertising was a sound business model was that it's been the business model for media for the last hundred plus years. I just there isn't like a single catalyst I think I started to really realize that unchecked these business models and unchecked in conjunction with the power of artificial intelligence 
which is now the ability to look into the hearts and minds of people and, and prey on their prefrontal cortex such that they become absolutely consumed. That's part of why you saw, you know, Facebook really used to just be about friends and family and sensational news and, and viral and really controversial content and videos started to take over the platform. That was the natural byproduct of telling a piece of technology that has control over how the system works and what content gets shown to whom. That is, a, that is the byproduct of telling that technology, hey, get as much time and attention out of that person as possible. Because the goal that you have, artificial intelligence, is to get this person to spend more and more and more time on this platform. Because when they spend more time, we make more money. The, the nature of the business model is such that these services have to grow user attention unabated for their businesses to stay viable. You know, there was no end to engagement apart from the number of hours and minutes in a day. When Netflix on their earnings calls talks about risk factors or who they compete with, they say with a straight face, sleep and your close relationships. That's what we compete with. And that illustrate that illustrates the 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 same thing that's happening with Facebook, right? Which is that they're just eating they're eating all of our time and attention. It has eroded our sleep. It has eroded the time that we used to spend nurturing relationships. Free is a lie. I think then I just was seeing the world through a lens of achievement and accumulation of wealth. And I, I really was convinced that if I built a business that was meaningful and, and really helped Facebook become a, a franchise company and I made money in the process, well, I'd be happy and I'd feel successful and my life will, would have been complete. What I regret from my time at Facebook is not understanding that the business model that we put in place necessitated, in order to grow, it necessitated increasing the amount of attention we got from our users. And I regret not taking that to its natural extension and imagining what the outcome might be. You know, I, I screwed up. Um, I had a role in this. I had a role in where we are today. And as I grow and learn, 
I, I hopefully will have a role in getting us to a better place. Part of getting us to a better place meant deliberately not giving Moment an ad-based business model. Instead, Moment's business model offers the basic service for free, but then charges users themselves to access additional services, so that the incentives of the company stay aligned with those of its users. It's a big deal for Tim Kendall, architect of the now classic internet ad-based business model, to not make his company advertising-based. And going further, to not even take venture capital. Because in the same way that he doesn't want to be beholden to advertisers over users, Tim doesn't want to be beholden to venture capitalists with the expectation of precipitous growth that they have. But Tim didn't stop at his realizations about the ad-based business model and venture capital. He went further. My old model was whenever I went back to first principles of like, okay, why is this an issue? I never went below capitalism in terms of like building, building back up from first principles. I always was like, well, of course, of course you need capitalism. But then what, 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 what on top of that should change? Facebook's not the first company to prey on the impulses and weaknesses of a consumer in order to drive inordinate amount of revenue and profits. Coca-Cola does this. Before that, cigarette companies did this. McDonald's does this. And so I'm pointing out that structurally... Capitalism, as, it's, as it exists today, allows for significant amount of harm in the name of profits. And I'm shocked to be saying this because the, 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 the Tim of three years ago would be, um, I think, surprised to hear me say this today. But I think there are some structural flaws in capitalism. I wouldn't have been caught dead saying that three, four, five years ago. Well, it's a, it's a pretty darn big shift for me. <laughs> so I think there's been, a, I think there's been a, a, a backdrop of a realization around the flaw in capitalism and then a specific realization that, wow, uh, Facebook and and these other online advertising businesses are in that same bucket. Well, we give people a, a set of tools for free. So anyone can sign up today and develop that initial understanding and awareness of just how much they use their phone. And then the second part of the experience is we have uh, what we call a coach, which is really just a program, a series of exercises that really help people sort of begin to understand, why am I using my phone so much? What are the underlying thoughts and feelings that create this behavior that I don't like? 
those examples of those thoughts and feelings is maybe I'm maybe I'm feeling bored. Maybe I'm feeling lonely. Maybe I'm feeling sad. And when those triggers arise, my default is to get on my phone. And so we coach people on how to come up with alternatives so that when those triggers come up, my Pavlovian reaction is not, oh, get on my phone. Escape. It's go outside, go for a walk, call my friend, uh, do something more in the interest of my psychological well-being than uh, this, this false antidote that the phone provides, which actually tends to make that bad feeling worse. So Tim and I met at an event hosted by the Center for Humane Technology. The Center for Humane Technology is at the forefront of reversing the digital attention crisis. And a lot of people at the organization, including its brave founder and my dear friend, Tristan Harris, were technology insiders. And a lot of people at the event where Tim and I met still are technology insiders who have contributed to the state of the world that we're in. Steve Wozniak, founder of Apple, was there. Um, Justin Rosenstein, who I worked with closely at, at, at Facebook and is the inventor of the like button. Um, Evan Sharp, the founder of Pinterest, was there. Um, the the inventor the inventor of the hashtag <laughs> um i think they all feel a sense of um i think they're concerned i feel think they feel a sense of obligation i think they feel like they in some way need to be on this leading edge of change When you start a company, you are the underdog. You are, on every measure, in the David and Goliath parable, you are David. And you feel that every day. And so what it leads to is a, a drive and a, and a conviction in trying to win, especially for a bunch of type A people who want to, want to have impact and want to win. And I think one of the things that you see happen, and I think this happened at Facebook, I think, by the way, I think it happened in spades at Uber, is that when you are David and you're in his shoes and you're coming to work every day as the underdog, it's really hard to realize the point at time where you become Goliath. That point in time when you become Goliath in your industry, your responsibility changes and your disposition should change and your societal responsibilities change. You are no longer the scrappy underdog. You're the dominant incumbent. I think what's missing from a lot of the these companies is taking stock of where they are on that continuum. And there was a point at which Facebook did start to become more dominant. And I think that's when it's, it's appropriate for it to change. 
And I think what you see in their behavior and how the company's being led is that it didn't. Something people struggle with in this moment of reckoning with technology is the intention of technology entrepreneurs. Are their intentions good or evil? For those of us who don't believe they have evil intentions, what do we do with the fact that non-malicious intentions have led to such malicious outcomes? What do we do with the fact that consequences may have been unintended, but may have also been predictable. My favorite piece of philosophy of technology is an article by Langdon Winner called Do Artifacts Have Politics? It starts like this. In controversies about technology and society, there is no idea more provocative than the notion that technical things have political qualities. At issue is the claim that the machines, structures, and systems of modern material culture can be accurately judged not only for their contributions of efficiency and productivity, not merely for their positive and negative environmental side effects, but also for the ways in which they can embody specific forms of power and authority. Do Artifacts Have Politics is a beautiful piece of writing and still prescient even though it was written in 1980. And it speaks to the fact that, look, we are surrounded by claims that artifacts, the internet, social media, Facebook, inherently have politics. Facebook itself is destroying democracy. It's destroying our families. It's destroying our mental and emotional well-being. That's called technological determinism. The flip side is, of course, the notion that a technology's impact is entirely driven by the social system it inhabits. That Facebook is just a neutral tool that's being exploited by bad actors, whether they be venture capitalists or the Kremlin. That's called social determinism. And what Langdon Winner invites us to see is that in most cases, neither technological determinism nor social determinism is very helpful for understanding how artifacts, how technologies, have politics. So how do we understand the politics of Facebook and social media and the internet? Well, you'll just have to read the article. But I will leave you with this. The context in which technologies are developed does contribute to the political impact they have. Which is why so many conversations about technology these days end up at the structural flaws in capitalism. Some people would say that the structural flaws in capitalism have so much bearing on how technologies develop that it almost doesn't even matter what the intentions of technology leaders are because they are so constrained. It is their fiduciary duty to maximize shareholder value at all cost, which for many of these companies means maximizing engagement. But to that, I'd say, to Jack Dorsey and Evan Spiegel and Susan Wojcicki and, of course, Mark Zuckerberg, I'd echo Tim in saying, you are Goliath. 
and not just in the U.S. tech industry, you are Goliath in our global economy. You have the power to change the context in which your technologies develop. You could change the system that prevents you from having the kind of impact you say you want to have. I understand no industry has ever initiated its own evolution in this way. But that's precisely why using your power to change the context in which you operate so that you don't have to compete with sleep and our closest relationships would be truly disruptive. And that would be going way beyond Goliath. You know, over the past year or so, I have... I've been playing in the back. I've, there's been these moments where I've been playing in the backyard with my kids and just experiencing a moment of, of joy. And I've had these moments where I thought, God, maybe this is just what it's all about. I think there are probably people who hear that and say, yeah, like obviously this is what it's all about. But it uh, wasn't so obvious to me. Rewind four years ago, three years ago, when I'm in the backyard with, with, with my kids in the same, you know, vignette, and I'm thinking, God, this is a waste of time. I really should be working on my email. So different. <laughs> Tim Kendall is the CEO of Moment. Yes, an app, but one that helps you use your phone less and live your life more. Americans spend an average of four hours a day on their phone, and so far Moment has given an average of one hour a day back to millions of people. Tim and I are going to be speaking together at the Institute for the Future in Palo Alto on Thursday, September 26th. For more information, go to Facebook, just kidding, go to reckonings.show slash episodes slash 25. And yes, the event will also be on the Reckonings Facebook page. Big thank yous go to David Roswell for your generous support, to the Center for Humane Technology for your monumental work to realign technology with humanity, and for being my connection to Tim. To Howard Rheingold for your unending inspiration. To those of you who shared your editorial insights, Helena DeGroot, Ali Walner, Patricia Adler, and Phil Groman. And to some of our friends on Patreon, you too can join this list of esteemed supporters at patreon.com slash reckonings. Abigail Farrell, Greg Bergeek, Trevor Stutz, Tibet Sprague, Kenny Alston, Kyle Studstill, Pete Foster, Laffrey Whitbrod, Jordan A. Patterson, and Christopher. I'm Stephanie Lepp, and if you made it all the way here, let me give one more thank you to you for listening to Reckonings. <laughs>